This morning we will be back continuing in our exposition of the gospel according to Luke. We will be finishing up chapter 7 this morning. This incredible chapter that is bookended by really shocking declarations, shocking revelations and pictures of faith. It bookends with two very unsuspecting people showing incredible faith in Jesus. It begins with a Roman soldier, of all people, showing faith which amazed Jesus. It was such faith. And then it ends with a very notorious sinner, a very wayward, sinful woman, showing incredible faith in Jesus. It is bookended by declarations of faith, and in between that are descriptions of demonstrating who Jesus is. He is the one who is victorious over death as he raises the widow's son by the very speaking of his word. John the Baptist, that, that great and final Old Testament prophet, Himself wavers in a moment of doubt, but that, but that doubt was not sinful as much as it was just truly, genuinely inquiring, are you the one? Because remember, John had been preaching prophetic judgment to come. He had been preaching that, that fire will come with this Messiah. And that judgment isn't quite looking the way it's supposed to. Jesus is healing everybody and and caring for everyone and, 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 and saving tax collectors and sinners. And it's not quite looking like John thought that it was going to. And yet Jesus, in his love for John, demonstrates all of these great moments of healings and salvations and the raisings of the dead. And he does this to, to show that Isaiah 61, that beautiful promise of the Messiah coming, to bring liberty to the captives is coming to place in him. And in the final statement, Jesus then turns to those chief priests, those Pharisees who have been accusing him and, and constantly trying to find reasons to deny everything that they are seeing. And he uses this interesting parable about children. And he says, this generation is, is like children who, when one comes and sings a dirge, which would have been a funeral song, none of you weep. And in that moment, he was talking about John. John came speak, speaking of the need for repentance, of the need to weep over your sin for the coming of the Messiah. And you did nothing but criticize him. And then when the Son of Man came, the Messiah came, and he preached salvation and the kingdom of God. You didn't dance. You didn't rejoice. You did nothing. So whether it was the prophetic judgment to come, the call for repentance, or it was the, the, the celebration of the incoming kingdom of God, you don't do anything. You people are not moved by nothing. You are cold, critical, religious observers. You are not worshipers of God. That's what he's saying. You're not moved by preachings of repentance, nor moved by preaching of the gospel. You're not moved at all. You're just cold, critical observers. But wisdom's children will be made manifest. And we will see one of those children today. And we will see one of those critical observers today. 
If you'd stand with me for the reading of the text, we're going to finish up Luke 7, Luke chapter 7, verse 36 through the end of the chapter. We read, one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, that is Jesus, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house, and you gave me no water for my feet. But she has wiped my feet with her tears, and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your Faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated this morning. Many people, and at times, have good reason to criticize the American church, to criticize it for its consumerism for its emphasis on materialism and prosperity. Criticize it for its comfort. Criticize it for its lack of gospel priority. But I would like to think that all of this is rooted to one singular point. And that is this, what the American church lacks most is love. It lacks love for Jesus. It lacks love for his word. It lacks love for his people. It lacks love for his mission. What we lack most is love. Because the central and supreme ethic of the Christian is meant to be love. It is the thing that sets us apart 
from everyone and everything else. True love. And the reason why there is such distortions of love in this world is because we will not give them a real example of it. We refuse to show them what true love looks like and the way Christ saw fit to give it. We've become cold and critical religious observers. Wanting things our way. Wanting to do it our way. Looking for control. Looking for comfort. Looking for the things that we deem best for ourselves. And in the midst of it all, we become like Ephesus. Strong in doctrine. Strong in principle. Strong in all of these things. Yet we have left our first That's really what this text is all about today. The reason that we have loved so little is because we've been, we have forgotten we've been forgiven so much. The reason we love so little is because many times we just think Jesus was supposed to do what he did. That we were, that he owed us something. We've carried our entitled mentality into the throne room of heaven and said he was supposed to do that. Of course, he loves me. But I want you to know, my friend, many of us need to remember, and I put myself always at the forefront of this, who we are, and who we would be apart from the redeeming grace of Christ. And it is not good. It is easy for us to turn our nose up to the world and say, thank God I'm not like those people. Instead of saying, please God, help me go after those people. Thank you God for your grace. Because apart from it, we are nothing but enemies, deserving of condemnation and hell. The clearest display of a forgiven sinner is a life marked by abounding love for Christ and the abounding love of Christ. Love is the proof of our pardon. And if love is absent, Perhaps we really haven't truly known what forgiveness is. It's an interesting text. I love it because Jesus has been accused of dining and eating with sinners. And then he's invited by a Pharisee to come and eat with them. It's very ironic. Story's full of irony. Because the irony is that this man eats with sinners and then Jesus accepts this man's dinner invitation. You're right, I eat with sinners. So I'm coming to your place. But the Pharisee doesn't see it this way. And this Pharisee is not inviting Jesus to come so that he can truly bless Jesus. This is another means of inquisition. He's coming to really bog down to see if he can catch Jesus. To really figure out if Jesus is who he is. He wants to know more. This is a, a bit more of the inquisition at play. And so he invites him to come to his house, to recline at his table. See that in verse 36, that kind of setting picture there. Now, 
This setting is very different to the way we do it, but in many ways, the, the, the houses at this time would have had an open courtyard in them. So this would have been more of almost like a block party at this time, and, and the tables were low to the ground, and there would have been cushions around the table, and those who have been invited to the table, and in many ways Jesus is kind of the central character there at this supper, at this party, would have been given kind of the main center area of the table. And what they would have done is there were no chairs like we have here in that sense. We wouldn't have said like that. Like the when you see the picture of the Last Supper, like that's a very Renaissance medieval picture. It is not reflective of what it would have looked like in the, the moment there. But what would have happened is the person would come and they would actually lay, kind of recline towards the table on their left side. And then they would eat with their right hand and be able to talk to others there with their feet oh, the other direction. Why? Because their feet are dirty. It's the dirtiest part of you, right? You want your feet near the food. So they would recline with their feet away from the table on their left side using their right hand to eat. And so that's kind of what you see there when it talks about the reclining of the table. So Jesus comes, and he comes knowing well what this point is. He knows the heart of this Pharisee. He knows what's going on. And shocking to everyone else there, though, Jesus has another reason why he's coming. Jesus actually has a dinner appointment there. But no one else knows of it at this moment. Jesus is planning to make a very public declaration of the reason why he came at this party where people are truly are, are inquiring of who he is and what he's about. And he is about to give them a supreme lesson in who he is and what he's about. And so, in the midst of this dinner invitation, all of a sudden, we get this out of nowhere and really shocking intrusion. Now, this bot party would have been pretty much welcome. That was a, a big thing in this culture. It's a culture that's built on shame and honor. And one of the things about honor is that you would be very hospitable in this culture. So you would welcome people into your home. If someone came by and said, can I join? The whole idea would be you would say, yes, of course. But I can promise you that the person who is introduced to us in 37 through 38 would not have been welcomed. Nor would she have been invited. Verse 37 and 38, Behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner. We see this repeated a lot. When she learned that he, that's Jesus, was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. We're told of very few things about this woman. Now, this story reflects something else that is going to happen later on in the final week of Jesus' life where another woman will do this. It will be Mary, the sister of Lazarus and Martha. She will do this as well. And that's recorded at the end of the other gospel accounts. So this is the first time this happens. We're not told who this woman is by name. Many have argued that it's Mary Magdalene. However, she is another uh, situation where she has seven demonic spirits she's relieved from this. So this is likely not Mary Magdalene. We don't actually know by name who this woman is. Nevertheless, there's a few details that we have 
that, that can kind of tell us of probably what this woman was. When it says that she was a woman of the city, literally a woman of the streets, it's likely that this woman was a prostitute, a known prostitute, known for her sin, known for her sexual immorality. But what I love about it is there's nothing in the story that actually tells us what her sin is. We can make assumptions. We can presume she could have been a gossip in the town for all we know. All we know is that she was a sinner. And the reason why I'm glad, I'm glad that in the Holy Spirit's inspiration of the Word of God, it didn't tell us what kind of sin it is because at the end of the day, it didn't matter. She was a sinner. It didn't matter what kind. She was a sinner. It didn't matter what kind it was. All that mattered was is that she was a sinner. And the reason why I think that is so important is because the manner of her sin was irrelevant to the power of Christ and irrelevant in light of her forgiveness. It didn't matter who she was. Why? Because she's been forgiven. See that in a moment. It didn't matter what her sin was. She's been forgiven. She just was a sinner. Well known. She would not have been invited at all to this party. And so what's amazing to me is that already we're seeing the displays of love in this woman's life. And the first display of love to me is her courage. That she would even go. Because it didn't matter what people were going to say about her. It didn't matter. She had to get to Jesus. And I want you to know today. Maybe you're visiting us, or maybe you're watching online, and you're afraid to come to church because you're afraid of how you might be perceived, or maybe it took a whole lot for you to get to enter this building. Thank you for your courageous love for Christ. Because that's all, He's all that matters. She didn't care what anyone else was going to say about her. Even the fact that she wasn't wanted there. She knew she wouldn't want to be wanted there. But all that mattered was i got to get to Jesus. It says that she had heard about Him. Well, what did she hear about this Jesus? Well, what were they calling? What were they saying bad about Jesus? When you read the last time, He's a friend of sinners. Oh my goodness, if He's a friend of sinners, then who else can I have to go to Him? Because everyone else is, hates me because I'm a sinner. Everyone else looks down on me, so if He's a friend of sinners, then that's who I'm going to. Because these Pharisees aren't my friend. They're just critical of me. They remind me of how bad I am. And how messed up I am. So if he's a friend of sinners, then he's the only one I'm going to go to. That's what she's heard about it. My friends, thank God Jesus is a friend of sinners. The only reason you're here today is because Jesus is a friend of sinners. She came. And she brought her most precious possession. This alabaster jar, very um, precious um, material during this time. And in it was this very high dollar perfume. And perhaps, maybe once this perfume was used to lure men in. Maybe perhaps this was once used for sin. Just like her body may once have been used for sin. She will give it all to Jesus. 
She'll surrender it all to Jesus. And in that moment, we see what real repentance is. Repentance is saying, God, I know I have used what you've created for wrong. And I know I've used it for sin. And I know I've used it for selfish gain. And I know I've used it for everything that you didn't mean for. But it's all yours. And I want to use it for you. I want to use it to glorify you. I want to use it to make much of you. Take everything that of me that has been used for wrong and use it for you and your glory. That's repentance. This woman comes with courageous love and she stands at the feet of Jesus. Remember, Jesus, those feet would have been away from the table so she doesn't feel even capable of approaching the table because she knows there's no space there for her. So she goes to His feet, the dirtiest part of Him at this part, walking through the streets in sandals. It would have been dirty. It would have been mucky and mire. And we're told a little bit later on, they haven't been cleaned. The host of the house didn't offer it. She comes and she starts weeping at the feet of Jesus. One side of Him, she's moved to tears. She's moved. Why? Because she's moved to love. Here is the friend of sinners. Here is the only one who wants her there. She's moved to tears by it. And she realizes that her tears are, are soaking his feet. And, and, and to see that she's almost ashamed by it, but, but she doesn't care because she, she doesn't want to mess his feet up. So she goes down, lays prostrate at his feet, and then she undoes her hair, which would have been extremely shameful in this culture. To let down your hair was shameful in this culture. Not only that, but Paul in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 says that a woman's hair is her crown of glory. Literally, she's casting her crown at his feet. And in the midst of she takes her crown of glory and wipes his feet and cleans his feet. And you can imagine her hair, which may have been adorned for beauty and gold and all of those things, is now covered in mud and dirt. But she cares not of that. She doesn't care what anyone else is thinking. All she cares about is loving Jesus. All she cares about is devoting herself to Jesus all she cares about is giving herself to Jesus. Why? Because she knows in Him He alone has redemption. He alone can forgive me. He alone will welcome me. He alone will save me. And this reminds me of another moment back in the Old Testament. In the book of Ruth. When Ruth comes to one who will be a redeemer to her. And the only thing that she knows to do is to throw herself at that Redeemer, hoping that He will redeem her, hoping that He will, will do whatever He needs. I don't know what He's going to do to me, but I'm going to throw myself at His feet and let Him do with me as He pleases, if it means His redemption. And in that story of Ruth, Boaz, her kinsman Redeemer, rather than harming her, rather than abusing her, what does he do? He protects her and he ensures her, I will be your redeemer. And I will do what is necessary to be your redeemer. And that is what is happening in this moment. 
This woman throws herself at the feet of Jesus. She then takes that ointment, that precious perfume that would have been worth probably her entire year's worth of, of, of living. And she dumps it on his feet and begins to anoint him and then kisses his feet. The dirtiest part of him, which would have been seen as so unshameful, so unbecoming, but this woman doesn't care because all that matters is that she's with Jesus. All that matters is that she loves him. She doesn't care what the crowd thinks. She doesn't care what others think about her. All, she ma all that matters is her abounding love for him and how much of it can she show him. This is a picture of complete humility and devotion at the feet of Jesus. And my friend, I want you to know this is what discipleship is supposed to look like. To be a disciple means that we live our life at the feet of Jesus. Why is she kissing his feet? It's because she's aware of Isaiah 52, 7. Blessed are the feet who bring good news of salvation. And he is that feet. And so when Paul in Romans 10 talks about blessed are the feet of those who bring good news. He's talking about Jesus' feet. Which guess what? Is the church. We are his feet. We are his feet that take the gospel out to the world. Because we live at his feet. We worship at his feet. We throw our crowns at his feet. He is worthy of all that we have. And we don't care what anyone else thinks about it. We don't care how shameful the world may think we are when we're living our life in utter and complete love for Jesus. She's courageous. She's unashamed. She surrenders her most vital possession, her most precious of possession. She lets down her hair, her crown of glory, and surrenders them to the feet of Christ because all that matters is being with Him. All that matters is making much of Him. All that matters is worshiping Him. And instead of being moved by this, instead of being moved by seeing Jesus' immense love for this broken and hurt and sinful woman, and seeing her love for Him, Enter critical observer, the Pharisee. Verse 39. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. In other words, Here's my proof that he's not who he is. Because if he really was a prophet of God, which he's so much more to be seen in a moment, he wouldn't dare let a sinner like that touch him. He wouldn't dare let a woman like that come near him. He wouldn't dare let a woman with her reputation do what she's doing to him. If he really were prophet of God, if he really knew who that woman was. My friends, what that Pharisee failed to realize in that moment, that Jesus knew her far better than anyone else. 
He had yadahed her. He had knew her. Knew her. From eternity, he had known her. And set his love upon her. This was merely the acting out in history and in time an eternal reality that had already been established in glory when Christ set his love on her. We love because he first loved us. He knew her. Christ knew her. Oh, he knew her. He knew exactly the woman she was. He knew exactly every single sin she had ever done. He knew everything more intimately than any other person in that room could have known. Even her herself could not have known the level of sin she had done the way Christ did. And this critical observer rules Jesus out. Nah, this can't be real. Because if, he, if this were real, this kind of person wouldn't be involved. If this were a true church, those kind of people wouldn't be there. How shameful these people worship that way. How shameful that person act like that. Even though it may be flowing out of love and devotion for Jesus overwhelmingly. It's not the way I would do it, so it can't be right. Critical, pharisaical observers who pour cold water on a flaming worshiper. And you know why you can be a critical observer when you see this? It's because you've never experienced it yourself. He had never known love like this. He had never known love for Christ. And it's easy to be a critical observer when you've never known the love for Jesus. And it's easy to be a critical observer like this when you've forgotten just how much of a sinner you are too. Critical, cold observations Turn away a weeping worshiper. God help us when we become like this. Cold, critical observers who turn away weeping worshipers because they don't fit our narrative. They don't look like us. They worship weirder than us. Worshiping the same Jesus, the true Jesus, the biblical Jesus, giving them everything that they know to give him in the moment. They don't do it like us, don't look like us, don't like them in here, don't want them around my kids, don't want them around my family, so we've got to turn them away. Pharisees. Cold and critical religious observer. That is what this Pharisee is. So many of us act just like him and have turned the beloved Jesus into the same when the story shows us the complete opposite. We think Jesus. Let me phrase this properly. Because we are cold, critical observers, we've turned Jesus into one. And how often we think he is just cold and clinical towards us. When his love for us goes beyond anything you can imagine. And his love for sinners goes beyond anything that you can imagine. Just because you have a hard time loving sinners doesn't mean he does. Doesn't mean he does. Because you better believe you're walking proof that he does. 
We may be critical observers, but I promise you Jesus is not. The very fact of the incarnation, which we're going to start celebrating at Christmas time, proves he is not a critical observer, but an active pursuer of sinners. Let it be made known today from this text. Oh, you who would stand scowling at the lost of this world. Jesus knows your heart just like he did this Pharisee. And now he calls you out with this Pharisee. We read. Jesus said, answering said to him, now remember, this man just thought those things. If he knew that woman is, he wouldn't be doing this. He thought those things that Jesus shows. I know your thoughts. I know your heart. Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. He answered, say it, teacher. In other words, tell it. Let's hear it. It's what we've been waiting on. Your great teaching. Jesus says, I got something for you. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 in RI and the other 50. When he could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? And Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you've judged rightly. And immediately here, he applies the parable. He immediately applies the teaching. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she's wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. I love this. Jesus gives this great parable to debtors. One of them owing about a month's worth of wages. They're the 50 denarii. The other is about three quarters of a year of wages. But the, the amount of wages is not what really Jesus is trying to get at. He's not trying to talk about how much or how little. He's simply trying to explain the reality that, notice, both of them are forgiven. He said that the, the, the one who is owed the debts canceled. The word there is ekaristo. Chorus, grace, literally means he graced them. That's what it means when it canceled the debt, he graced them. What is grace? To give someone they, something they don't deserve. He canceled their debt. He literally graced them both. He says to them, well, which one of them do you think is going to love them more? And I love kind of how Simon answers. Because Simon answers in the kind of like, I'm not going to try to let you catch me. So he says, well, I, I suppose the greater debt. And he's right. Jesus says, you're right. You judged rightly. The one who has the greater debt removed, the recognition that a greater debt has been taken, will show greater love. And then immediately he goes to the application. Do you see this woman? Why well, say that? Because the truth of the matter is, Simon had never saw this woman. I love what Dostoevsky says. To love someone means to see them as God intended them. That's what love is. To see someone as God intended them. 
I don't care what you see about them. I don't care what you think about them. The answer is, what does God see? What does God see? And you will never love anyone rightly till you seek to love them the way God sees them. That is an image bearer of God. Full of, of immense worth and value. Who is perishing. Is on the path of perishing. And if you love them, you don't get to care what political affiliation they are. It doesn't matter where they're from, what they look like, or what they've done. You will love them and want nothing but glory for them in Christ. Do you see them? And the reason why the church is anemic in its mission is because you don't see nobody. You see what you want to see. And you turn your eyes to the rest. So I'm asking you today, when you leave this place, do you see Anchorage? Do you see them? Do you see the man on the street asking you for another dime? Or do you just see a hassle? Do you see the woman struggling with sexual abuse and pain? Or do you just see another fornicator? Do you see them? Do you see them? He points to her, and then I love what he does. He turns the tables on Simon, the Pharisee. Remember, it was shameful to not be hospitable in this culture. It was shameful to not be a good host. And Jesus now actually makes Simon the greater debtor. Because he says, listen, you see this woman as a sinner, yet she's been a greater host. You didn't offer anything to clean my feet with. You haven't given me the greeting of kiss, which in the Middle East would have been a, a common sign, a greeting of kiss, a greeting of peace and welcome. You haven't given me a single kiss. She hasn't stopped kissing my feet. You didn't give me any oil, which would have been a, a common thing to give to one you invite personally to your home to anoint them. You didn't even give me olive oil. She's given me her most prized perfume. She's the greater host. So I know you see her as a sinner, but right now you're the greater debtor. Oh, Jesus has a way of turning it on us, doesn't he? And he does this because it would have been so easy for Simon, the self-righteous, to think, well, you know, I, I know I've sinned a little, but I'm not like those people. And it's that kind of mentality that's what kids, like, just poured cold water on our love in this American church. Because we don't think we needed to be forgiven of that much. We have lost the weightiness of sin and the holiness of God. And because God has kind of been brought down here and we're kind of up here, grace really doesn't seem that amazing. But when you realize how holy God is, perfect and spotless, and that a single fiber of sin would be extinguished in His presence, and you realize that we have been fully 
filled with sin and every fiber of our being is bent away from God and yet He has chosen to love us. That's amazing grace. But this man did not see it that way. So Jesus needed to pour some water on His self-righteousness. This woman was the greater host. Why? Because she loved much. But notice what it says here. This is so important. And we need to get this right. Verse 47. Therefore I tell you, her sins which are many are forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven loves little. Now this passage will be used by many to denote that it requires works of love towards Jesus in order to be saved. In order to be forgiven. Well, that's literally contradicted three verses from now. But it's important for us to under that for, that word for, F-O-R, can support a grammatical structure two different ways. One, for, can mean causation. So I'll give you an example of this. The house blew up for the dynamite went off. So that would be a causative construction. The house blew up. Why? Because for dynamite blew up. But for can also be what's called an evidentiary support. It shows evidence that something has happened. I'll give you an example. The house blew up for I saw it with my own eyes. In other words, the house didn't blow up because I saw it. It blew up and I saw it as an evidence. And so what he's saying here is the reason that she's done all of this is why? Because she's been forgiven. It's because she's been forgiven that she loves. And then we get this little added statement to make clear that that's what's being said when he says, for he who is forgiven little loves little. So love is the proof of pardon. Love is the fruit of forgiveness. Not the root, the fruit. If you know you have been forgiven and the extent to which you've been forgiven by Jesus, guess what? You're going to love a lot if you know how much you've been forgiven. But if you think that Jesus just kind of gave you a little bit of forgiveness and you're probably better off than most people anyways, I promise you, you won't love people. And I promise you, you won't love Jesus. You'll be a spoiled brat in the family of God thinking you were owed every bit of grace you've received. We got a lot of spoiled brats in the church, in the family of God, because we really think we were entitled to the grace we received. Now, let me correct something here to make very clear. This is not saying that love is fixed, that our love is fixed on the basis of the amount that we've been forgiven. So, for instance, you may say, man, like, the Lord was gracious to me. I was saved when I was seven years old. And I've been able to walk faith. That. You're not saying you haven't sinned. You're not saying any of that. You're just saying I've been blessed to, to walk most of my life with Jesus. So does that mean that I am forever fixed to love less than the gangbanger who God, who we all love their testimony, right? We always want the guy who was like, did every drug in the book and, 
you know, sold themselves to the devil and now has been saved. Like, that's the guy we always want to invite to the youth camp. Never the guy that's like, you know, I was raised in a Christian home and God saved me, right? So are we, what we're saying is that that person, right, will always love Jesus more. And that's not what's all being said here. What Jesus is trying to get at is that we all need to understand the weightiness of sin. And whether you were saved at 7 or 77, not a single ounce of it was deserved. And every ounce of it was grace. But there's another reason that you can love it, right? Yeah, you can love more if you were saved from a life of prostitution or things like that. Sure, that's going to be exemplified in your testimony. But the same kind of love should be reflected to the person who says, Lord, thank you for preserving me from that. From preserving me from those pasts. From preserving me from those difficulties. Because both are grace. Preservation and redemption are both grace. And both deserving of immense love for Jesus. So whether it was the 50 or the 500, it was all grace that he canceled. And thus he is deserving of great love. Which this woman shows and the man does not. We love so little because deep down we don't think God really saved us from that much. And oh how wrong we would be in that regard. But notice here now the cause of her forgiveness as we begin to wrap this up. Verse 48 through 50. Jesus now looking to her. This is about her here. And he's doing this because one, he wants everyone there to know who he is. And he wants everyone there to know why he came. So this isn't more about her as much as it's also about everybody and you and me as well today. He wants everyone to know the basis for forgiveness. He says... Your sins are forgiven. And those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? In other words, hey, no mere prophet can do that. He's more than a prophet. And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. I, I want you to know, if ever there was a text where we could go to and say, it is acts of love for Jesus that give you salvation. This is the text. Like, you can't get more humble, devoted love than what this woman has done. So if ever there was a place for Jesus to be like, your works of love have saved you. This is the text. But he didn't say a thing about her works. Because her works were a fruit of her love. And her love was a fruit of her faith. Her faith is what gave her salvation. Her faith in what? That Jesus is a friend of sinners. Faith that if I go to Him, He will receive me. Faith that He will not cast me away if I come. It was that faith that saved her. Faith that everyone else in this room will despise me and not want me there. But Jesus does. And I believe that. It was that faith that saved her. And it was that faith that for the rest of her life, she could do this. She could go in peace. Peace with God. Men may not be peaceful to you, dear woman. That's what he's saying. But you have peace with me. And that, my friends, is all that matters. Is do you have peace with God? And it's found in Christ alone. 
and faith in him alone. This is the clearest, one of the clearest texts on soul of D-Day. Faith alone in the scriptures. Your faith has saved you. But notice what faith does. Faith produces love. And a loveless Christian life is a faithless Christian life. There is no love. There is no faith. Jesus does have the authority to forgive sins. He alone has it. And it's not because only he is only, it's, it's not just because he is truly God, but it's because Jesus has the authority to forgive sins because he is the one who dealt with it at Calvary. He alone can forgive sins because he alone took the wrath of God for sin. That's it. There is no depth. This woman, in all of her humility and shame that she went through to love Jesus, pales in comparison to the shame and love He showed for us. You can never love Jesus too much. You can never go too low for Jesus. Because He always went lower. He always went. His condescension is beyond all comprehension. You cannot go too low to love Jesus. There's no one in this world that you can't love because He loved you. He loved you. And I love what He did for this woman. She had been forgiven. That's why our love was there. But Jesus wanted her to have assurance. That's why He said what He said. You're forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. My friend, I want you to know today, Jesus wants you to have assurance. He wants you to have assurance of your salvation. Why? So that you can go live freely for Him. So that you can go live in radical, utter love. And the only way to do that kind of self-sacrificing love is to know your sins dealt with. It's to know that in the courtrooms of heaven, you are acquitted and you've been given peace. When you know that, and you are assured that I am my beloved's, and he is mine. My friends, oh, what a radical life you might live to lead. Live to lead. You can be absolutely sure today that your sins are forgiven. The question is, will you humbly repent and surrender your life to Christ? If you will, then he says this today to you. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. My friends, we as Christians are not cold religious observers. We've acted like it far too long. And it must stop. But that is not the call of the person who has been forgiven by the God of heaven. That is not the person who has been plucked out of the mire of sin and depravity and given new life in Christ. We are forgiven sinners who are called to abound in love and devotion for Jesus, His people, His word, and His mission. Many have invited Jesus into their heart but never actually given it to him. Many of you, many of us, many in this world, many who call themselves Christian are just like this Pharisee. I invited him to my house. Yet you've done it for all the wrong reasons. You've invited him into your heart, 
but you've never surrendered your life. You've never given him your heart and devotion. You just added him to your table because it's comfortable to have him there. But you will not weep at his feet. You barely even look at him. I'm not asking you at all to invite him in your heart. I'm asking you to surrender your life at his feet. To love him who alone can forgive you and has forgiven you. To love him who has loved you with an everlasting love. Who is a friend of sinners. Who alone has said you can come to my table and I will not cast you out. I will give you a single scowl. I will invite you there and I will love you and I will shower you with grace and mercy day after day. That is who it is that you surrender to. My friends, don't let Jesus spend his life being questioned at your table. Spend your life surrendering at his feet. And I want you to know, dear sinner, there is always room at the feet of Jesus. There is always room. So will you go be his feet and go invite the world? I have the friend of sinners, and his name is Jesus. Won't you love him? Do you love him? Let your heart be set ablaze for the one who loved and died for you. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for this time together to be able to acknowledge you who are friend of sinners. Lord, that you came to seek and save the lost. That is our great and only hope. Our only comfort in life and death is that you, Jesus Christ, our Lord, has come and died a substitutionary death in the place of sinners and granted us your righteousness that we might live in peace with you forever and always. Lord, I pray that you would baptize this church in love, that you would fill us with your spirit, that you would give us a love not only for you that overflows and abounds, but a love for your mission to go after the lost. We pray for revival. We pray for a turning to you in a way that is unlike anything else. Lord, we pray that we will look up week after week and see sinners being drawn into your banquet, drawn to your feet. And Lord, let us not be critical observers when they come. Let us be those who embrace them and love them the way that you loved us. Pour our hearts out for them. Give us greater love and compassion for one another. Let us never, ever grow cold to the amazing grace of which you have given us, God. And let our heartbeat always be one that declares loudly, Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, Jesus, help us love you more. Shake off this coldness that gets a part of us. Shake off this distractions and all these other things that put a blanket over our light, a bushel over our heart. Let us not leave our first love any longer. But let us look to Jesus and let us be stoked day by day with greater humble devotion for you, Jesus. Help us, Jesus. 
And I pray, Lord, right now that if anyone here is, doesn't have that assurance of pardon, that doesn't have that assurance of forgiveness, right now that they would see in you that they have a place at your feet. That they would turn from that which they were using for evil, their bodies, their minds, their hearts. And that they would surrender it all to you. Right here and now. That they may hear your words boldly and bluntly upon their heart. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. But we say all of these things in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen.